0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 10, 2023 Friday reading of the Denver Post. My name is Dee Hyslop. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Museum Removes Name from Gallery, written by Sam Tabachnik of the Denver Post. Criminal charges for Trump are likely by William Rashbaum, Ben Protis, and Jonah Brownwich of the New York Times. DPS to close three schools by Jessica Seaman of the Denver Post and following up with miscellaneous articles. Museum removes name from gallery. Late scholar, board member, and art venue reached 50-year naming agreement in 2018 by Sam Tabachnik of the Denver Post. In January 2018, Emma C. Bunker and the Denver Art Museum reached an agreement, one that would etch the longtime donor and board member's name on the institution's walls for half a century to come. The esteemed scholar who helped the Denver Museum build its Asian art collection over six decades would donate $125,000 to the museum's Vision 2021 Capital Campaign, a project to renovate the North Building and expand the museum campus. Two of her children would chip in another $60,000 combined. In return, the Denver Art Museum agreed to put the Bunker name in three-dimensional lettering on a gallery wall displayed in a prominent location until 2071. But five years to the day after Bunker put pen to paper on a deal that would cement her legacy in the Mile High City for decades to come, the museum notified the Colorado Attorney General that it planned to remove her name from the wall in the Martin Building and give back all the money. The museum's attorney in a January 25th letter obtained this week by the Denver Post wrote that the institution could no longer abide by the naming agreement due to mounting evidence that its respected donor who died in 2021 aided a criminal enterprise. The letter was sent nearly two months after the publication of a year-long investigation by the Post that found Bunker helped her close friend and collaborator Douglas Latchford sell and loan looted Cambodian relics across the globe. In light of Bunker's long involvement with Latchford, connection to pieces with false provenance documents indicating that she intentionally provided false provenance and related issues, the museum has determined that it is no longer willing to abide by the naming agreement, the museum's lawyer, Heidi S. Glantz, wrote in the letter. Now the Bunker name has come down. Denver Art Museum officials confirmed Thursday. The six-figure donation was returned to her estate and children. This action, approved by the museum's Board of Trustees, follows evidence that former museum trustee and volunteer Emma Bunker participated with indicted art dealer Douglas Latchford to mislead the museum into acquiring looted and illegally trafficked works of art, the museum said in a statement released Thursday. Along with the naming agreement, Bunker also donated nine artworks to her beloved museum, pieces she promised had not been imported or exported into or from any country contrary to its laws. At least six of those works are under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. The museum wants to give back the rest either to their countries of origin or to the Bunker family. All told, the removal of Bunker's name and monetary return represents the most significant action taken by the Denver Art Museum since the Post's investigation outlined the scholar's integral role in an international art looting scandal. We hope this marks a turning point for the Denver Art Museum. Bradley J. Gordon, a lawyer spearheading Cambodia's global quest to reclaim its heritage, said Wednesday, it starts to recognize the terrible harm Emma Bunker and Douglas Lashford did to an entire nation. Three of Bunker's children did not respond to requests for comment or declined to speak to a reporter Wednesday. A Scholar's Role Examined The Post's series found Bunker was hardly a passive player in Latchford's scheme to sell stolen Cambodian relics for huge profits. The Bangkok-based collector and dealer over the years accumulated one of the world's largest private collections of Khmer antiquities many of which authorities say were plundered during Cambodia's bloody civil war by bands of Khmer Rouge soldiers. Latchford, meanwhile, sold these thousand-year-old artifacts to wealthy foreign collectors and prominent museums such as New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he couldn't have done it without his trusted confidant in Denver, the Post's reporting found. Emails taken from Latchford's computer and shared with the Denver Post show Bunker overtly discussing how to forge signatures on documents needed to transport looted works. She co-authored three books on Khmer art that experts say were necessary for Latchford to legitimize and move his plundered pieces around the globe, and she repeatedly vouched for Falsified Providence's Antiquities Ownership History. Bunker's association with the Denver Art Museum also allowed Latchford to use the Mile High City Museum as a way station for these priceless Southeast Asian relics, serving to sanitize them for sale to future buyers, the post found. Latchford sold, loaned, and gifted 14 pieces to the museum deals that Bunker shepherded along. Only the Met had more Latchford pieces in its collection than Denver. The Colorado scholar who died at age 90 is named or referenced in five civil and criminal cases related to trafficking stolen art, though she never was charged with a crime. A federal grand jury in New York indicted Latchford in 2019, accusing him of pilfering Cambodia's cultural heritage. He died in 2020 before he could stand trial. The Denver Art Museum through last year, defended his association with Bunker and her decades of financial and scholarly contributions, despite growing evidence that she collaborated in Latchford's illicit dealings. Chasing Aphrodite, a blog covering the movement of stolen antiquities, detailed Bunker's questionable involvement with several pieces at Denver's museum in 2012. The New York Times identified Bunker in 2017 as a co-conspirator in a scheme to Dr. provenances or ownership histories to allow Stoden Cambodian antiquities to be sold on the open market. Public court documents referencing Bunker's role in Lashford's operation were available a decade ago, repeatedly mentioning a Colorado scholar. Only now is the museum reckoning with Bunker's past. The museum's attorney in the January letter cited documentary evidence and sworn testimony of which the museum has recently become aware suggests Bunker facilitated Latchford's illegal activities by providing false provenances for and introducing him to the museum for the acquisition, assumption on loan, and display of various artworks involved in the DOJ investigation. The museum has learned that before Bunker died in 2021, her role in Latchford's criminal activities was part of the DOJ investigation, which continues to focus on the provenance of several Asian antiquities she donated to the museum, Glance wrote. The museum also intends to rid itself of the pieces that Bunker created to donate, agreed to donate in 2017, including six Cambodian bronzes. Six of the nine items the scholar gave the museum are under federal investigation and five objects not associated with the gift agreement, also were shared with federal investigators. The museum said it will return the artworks to their country of origin or to the Bunker family pending the DOJ probe. The Attorney General's office was notified because it is charged with overseeing the state's nonprofits and charitable organizations. After the Post's series, the museum has been distancing itself slowly from Bunkers Association. Officials in December removed from the museum's website an Asian Art Acquisition Fund named in Bunker's honor, pledging to use some of that money for provenance research. The museum also said it would be making it a top priority to probe items in the collection associated with Bunker. The Denver Art Museum received 221 pieces from the Bunker family over the years, with 34 still on display as of December. About 40 of these objects are considered antiquities and remain a continuing focus of the museum's provenance research, a museum spokesperson, Andy Sinclair, wrote in an email Thursday. A pretty big deal. Removing a donor's name from a wall or building is uncommon, although there are a few recent examples. Art museums in the U.S. and Europe in the last few years have scrubbed mentions of the Sackler family, the OxyContin makers, accused of launching the opioid crisis. But giving back nearly $200,000 rarely happens in the museum world. Gary Viken, the former director of the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore said he didn't do that once in 20 years at the helm. It's hard to imagine a circumstance when that would happen, he said, that's a pretty big deal. Gordon, meanwhile, said Cambodia is still waiting for the Denver Art Museum and Bunker's family to share records and photographs of Khmer antiques as his team continues its hunt. This information could significantly speed up the massive task we have in front of us to track down Cambodia's stolen national treasures scattered across the globe, he said. Criminal charges for Trump are likely by William Rashbaum, Penn Protus and Jonah Bromwich of the New York Times. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office recently signaled to Donald Trump's lawyers that he could face criminal charges for his role in the payment of hush money to a porn star. The strongest indication yet that prosecutors are nearing an indictment of the former president according to four people with knowledge of the matter. The prosecutors offered Trump the chance to testify next week before the grand jury that has been hearing evidence in the potential case, the people said. Such offers almost always indicate an indictment is close. It would be unusual for District Attorney Alvin Bragg to notify a potential defendant without ultimately seeking charges against him. In New York, potential defendants have the right to answer questions in the grand jury before they are indicted, but they rarely testify, and Trump is likely to decline the offer. His lawyers could also meet privately with prosecutors in hopes of defending off criminal charges. Any case would mark the first indictment of a former U.S. president and could upend the 2024 presidential race. It also would elevate Bragg to the national stage, although not without risk. Trump has faced an array of criminal investigations and special counsel inquiries over the years, but has never been charged with a crime, underscoring the gravity of Bragg's inquiry. Bragg could become the first prosecutor to charge Trump, but he might not be the last. In Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney is investigating whether Trump interfered in the 2020 election, and at the federal level, a special counsel is scrutinizing Trump's efforts to overturn the election results, as well as his handling of classified documents. The Manhattan Inquiry, which has spanned nearly five years, centers on a $130,000 payment to porn star Stormy Daniels in the final days of the 2016 presidential campaign. The payment was made by Michael Cohen, Trump's former fixer, who later was reimbursed by Trump from the White House. Cohen is expected to testify in front of the grand jury, but has not yet done so. The district attorney's office has already questioned at least six other people before the grand jury, according to several other people with knowledge of the inquiry. Bragg's prosecutors have not finished the grand jury presentation, and he could still decide against seeking an indictment. Trump has previously said that the prosecutors are engaged in a, quote, witch hunt against him that began before he became president and has called, Bragg a Democrat who is black, a politically motivated racist. A person for the district attorney's office declined to comment. Even if Trump is indicted, convicting him or sending him to prison will be challenging. The case against the former president hinges on an untested and therefore risky legal theory involving a complex interplay of laws, all amounting to a low-level felony. If Trump ultimately were convicted, he would face a maximum sentence of four years, although prison time would not be mandatory. Trump's lawyers also are sure to attack Cohen, who in 2018 pleaded guilty to federal charges related to the hush money. The $130,000 payout came during the final stretch of the 2016 presidential campaign when Daniels' representatives contacted the National Enquirer to offer exclusive rights to her story about an affair with Trump. David Pecker, the tabloid's publisher and a longtime ally of Trump, had agreed to look out for potentially damaging stories about him during the 2016 campaign, and at one point even agreed to buy the story of another woman's affair with Trump and never publish it, a practice known as catch and kill. But Pecker didn't bite at Daniel's story. Instead, he and the tabloid's top editor, Dylan Howard, helped to broker a separate deal between Cohen and Daniel's lawyer. Trump later reimbursed Cohen through monthly checks. In the federal case against Cohen, Prosecutors said that Trump's company falsely accounted for the monthly payments as legal expenses and that company records cited a retainer agreement with Cohen. Although Cohen was a lawyer and became Trump's personal attorney after he took office, there was no such retainer agreement and the reimbursement was unrelated to any legal services Cohen performed. In New York, falsifying business records can amount to a crime, albeit a misdemeanor. To elevate the crime to a felony charge, Bragg's prosecutors must show that Trump's intent to defraud included an intent to commit or conceal a second crime. In this case, that second crime could be a violation of New York State election law. Although hush money is not inherently illegal, the prosecutors could argue that the $130,000 payout effectively became an improper donation to Trump's campaign under the theory that because the money silenced Daniels, it benefited his candidacy. Combining the criminal charge with the violation of state election law would be a novel legal theory for any criminal case, let alone one against the former president, raising the possibility that a judge or appellate court could throw it out or reduce the felony charge to a misdemeanor. This is not the first Manhattan grand jury to hear evidence about Trump. Before leaving office at the end of 2021, Bragg's predecessor, Cyrus Vance Jr., had directed prosecutors to begin presenting evidence to an earlier grand jury. That potential case focused on the former president's business practices, in particular whether he fraudulently inflated his network by billions of dollars to secure favorable terms on loans and other benefits. But Bragg, soon after taking office last year, grew concerned about the strength of that case and halted the presentation, prompting two senior prosecutors leading the investigation to resign. Still, the portion of the investigation concerned with Trump's net worth is continuing, people with knowledge of the matter said. Defendants rarely choose to testify before a grand jury, and it is highly unlikely Trump would do so. As a potential defendant, he would have to waive immunity, meaning his testimony could be used against him if he were charged. Although he could have a lawyer present in the grand jury to advise him, the lawyer would be prohibited from speaking to the jurors, and there would be few limits on the questions prosecutors could ask the former president. In recent years, Trump has been wary of answering questions under oath, given the legal intrigue swirling around him. When the New York Attorney General deposed him last year in a civil case, Trump refused to provide any information, availing himself of his Fifth Amendment right to refuse to answer questions more than 400 times over the course of four hours. If he testifies about the hush money to this grand jury, he will not have that option. DPS to close three schools. Decision to shutter two elementaries. Middle school comes during emotional meeting by Jessica Seaman of the Denver Post. Denver School Board voted Thursday to close three schools at the end of the academic year because of critically low enrollment, including two that members had decided against shuttering nearly four months ago. The Board of Education was unanimous in its decision to close Denver Discovery and Mathematics and Science Leadership Academy. All but one member, Vice President Unte Anderson, voted to close the third Fairview Elementary. All three votes were emotional for the school board, which has been reluctant to close schools. At least four members were brought to tears. Closing a school can be a painful and emotional process, but it's important to remember the decision is made with the best interests of students, board member Michelle Quattlebaum said, adding, This is hard for me. I do not like closing schools. The decision to close the schools comes as overall enrollment in Denver Public Schools has fallen for three consecutive years. The problem is starting to affect the district's budget, with DPS facing a potential $9 million budget shortfall at the end of the year. Superintendent Alex Marrero has identified 12 additional schools that also have low enrollment, but he doesn't plan to make a final recommendation on their fate until September. The three schools that will close were among the 10 schools Marrero recommended shutting in the fall. The earlier plan was rejected by the Board of Education in November even after it was revised to include only two schools, Denver Discovery and Mathematics and Science Leadership Academy. In the fall, all but one school board member, Scott Balderman, voted against closing both schools. Board member Scott Esserman said his daughter was among the first students to attend Denver Discovery. It is at this time the right thing to do, he said, It doesn't make it less painful, it's not going to make people less angry, and it's not going to produce a tremendous amount of trust. All three schools that will be closed have fewer than 120 students. Denver Discovery, a middle school, is the smallest with only 62 students projected to enroll if it remained open next year. The board's vote means that students at Mathematics and Science Leadership Academy will merge with those at Valverde Elementary School, and those attending Fairview will go to Cheltenham Elementary School during the 2023 24 academic year. Families with students at Fairview or Mathematics and Science Leadership Academy also can choose to send their child to another school in the district. Denver Discovery families will get to choose what schools their kids attend in the fall instead of students merging with another school. Employees at the three schools have guaranteed jobs in the district despite the closures, according to Marrero's presentation to the board. School board members questioned Marrero about the district's plans for Fairview, which has faced pushback from Sun Valley residents and the Denver Housing Authority. Really, this is unfair, said naja Abu Serre whose youngest daughter is a first grader at Fairview. Her eldest also attended the school. I don't know anything about Cheltenham, she said. Sari was the only known parent to attend the meeting in person and said she wasn't reassured by the district's plan to provide transportation to Fairview students who attend Cheltenham in the fall. I will never send her by school bus, she said of her youngest child. The Denver Housing Authority declined to comment Thursday on the school board's decision to close the school, But in the past, the Housing Authority has yet said it believes redevelopment in the Sun Valley neighborhood will bring enough children into the area to keep Fairview open. But DPS officials have said their projections show fewer students will come back to the neighborhood and that some of them are likely to choice into another school. District staffers, including Marrero, said Thursday there was also a possibility Fairview could reopen in the coming years if more children than expected end up residing in the neighborhood. We're not taking any wrecking ball to our school, Morero said. That school will remain there. But Anderson, who voted against closing Fairview, said he wanted more charity, clarity on why DPS and the Denver Housing Authority have different enrollment projections. I'm struggling with the Fairview vote for a magnitude of reasons, said Anderson, who was running for re-election. I'm trying to understand a little bit about this conflicting information we are getting from Denver Housing Authority. Directors who voted for closing Fairview, including Board President Wohokhto Sochi Gaitan and Esserman said they hoped the projections from the Housing Authority are correct and that in a couple of years, that will be, they will be revisiting the school's fate. Hopefully we are wrong and five years from now, we see black and brown families coming back, Gaetan said, but if we are right and we need to do better as a community and we need to protect our most vulnerable. DPS is just the latest district to close schools because of falling enrollment. School districts across the U.S. are finding there are fewer students in their classrooms. Last year, Jeffco Public Schools Board voted to close 16 elementary schools. At DPS, overall enrollment began falling three years ago, but fewer elementary-age students have been attending Denver schools since 2014. The district has attributed the decline to fewer babies being born gentrification and rising housing costs. Falling enrollment hits school budgets because they receive less funding when there are fewer students. Marrero has previously said small schools have larger class sizes and fewer resources, such as electives for students. District officials also have said they are subsidizing schools with low enrollment to keep them operational. DPS is providing the three schools that will close with supplemental funding that ranges from $680,139 to $1.05 million. Biden rolls out budget plan challenges GOP to follow suit by Josh Boak of the Associated Press. As political gridlock puts the government at risk for defaulting, President Joe Biden on Thursday made an opening bid with a budget plan that would cut deficits by $2.9 trillion over the next decade, a proposal Republicans already intend to reject. It's part of a broader attempt by the President to call out House Republicans who are demanding severe cuts to spending in return for lifting the government's legal borrowing limit. But the GOP has no counteroffer so far other than a flat no to a Biden blueprint with tax increases on the wealthy that could form the policy backbone of Biden's to be declared campaign for reelection in 2024. Striding around a stage at a union training center in Philadelphia, Biden seemed to be in full campaign mode as he spoke about his plan for the government's finances and how his values contrasted with Republican priorities. I just laid out the bulk of my budget, Biden said. Republicans in Congress should do the same thing. Then we can sit down and see where we disagree." Yet the president doubted that GOP lawmakers could make their numbers match their calls for a balanced budget, and he suggested that any efforts to do so could come at the expense of middle-class families. How are they going to make the math work, Biden said? What are they going to cut? Biden's package of tax and spending priorities is unlikely to pass the GOP-run House or the Senate, where Democrats hold a slim edge as proposed. House speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican California, said the President's proposed deficit reduction was inadequate. It just seems like it's going to create the biggest government in history. I don't think that's what we need at this time, he said. In addition to deficit reduction, Biden's 10-year budget largely revolves around the idea of taxing the wealthy to help fund programs for the middle class, older adults, and families. It would raise $4.7 trillion from higher taxes with an additional $800 billion in savings from changes to programs. The tax increases include a reversal of the 2017 tax cuts made by President Donald Trump on people earning more than $400,000 a year. Biden has floated a new 25% minimum tax on households worth $100 million or more. Also the tax that companies pay on stock buybacks, would rise fourfold and those earning more than $400,000 would pay an additional Medicare tax that would help to keep the program solvent beyond 2050. Medicare could negotiate on the prices of more prescription drugs, helping to save the government money. Accompanying that would be $2.6 $2.6 trillion of new spending, including the restoration of the expanded child tax credit that would give families as much as $3,600 per child compared with the current level of $2,000. That credit would be fully refundable, which means households could receive all of that sum even if they don't own, owe any taxes. The budget proposal would impose a 35 dollar a month cap on insulin prices, matching a change that Biden put in place for Medicare recipients. At a time of increased tensions with Russia and China, the budget shows a decline in military spending as a share of the U.S. economy over the next decade. But federal spending would be equal to about one quarter of economic output as the spending on Social Security and Medicare climbs, essentially keeping the government the same size as it is currently. The budget would seek to close the carried interest loophole that allows wealthy hedge fund managers and others to pay their taxes at a lower rate, and it would prevent billionaires from being able to set aside large amounts of their holdings in tax-favored retirement accounts. The plan also projects saving $24 billion over 10 years by removing a tax subsidy for cryptocurrency transactions. McCarthy has called for putting the U.S. government on a path toward a balanced budget, but by refusing to raise taxes or cut Social Security and Medicare spending, GOP lawmakers face some harsh math that makes it hard to reduce deficits without risking a voter backlash before a presidential election. He has said his plan's release was pushed back because Biden's proposal was only now coming out. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, expressed skepticism that McCarthy has any coherent plan that House Republicans can coalesce around. Enough with the dodging, enough with the excuses, Schumer said. Show us your plan and show us how it's going to get 218 votes on your side of the aisle. Biden's deficit reduction goal is significantly higher than the $2 trillion that he had promised in his State of the Union address last month. With the economy already in a fragile state because of high inflation, if Biden and Congress cannot agree to raise the statutory debt cap of $31.4 trillion by this summer, the government could default on payments and perhaps shove the country into a recession. With budget also shows the shadow of Trump's legacy as provisions in his 2017 tax cuts will expire after 2025. Biden wants to eliminate elements of that overhaul, arguing that lower taxes failed to produce the growth that Trump promised. But Biden's budget does not address tax cuts that benefited households making less than $400,000. Their expiration could amount to a tax increase that would violate a pledge by Biden to raise taxes only on the wealthy. Based off the data, the cost of extending the tax breaks for people making less than $400,000 would be $1.5 trillion, according to Kyle Pomerleau, a senior fellow at the Center Right American Enterprise Institute. That would have the deficit savings being promoted by Biden, but Pomerleau cautioned that his estimates might be high because the president's plan includes the cost of the expanded child tax credit. Biden's proposal would increase the top marginal tax rate to 39.6% on income above $400,000. For households with $1 million in income, earnings from capital gains such as stocks or property sales would no longer enjoy a discounted tax rate compared with wages. The President would increase the corporate tax rate to 28% and increase the tax rate on U.S. multinational's foreign earnings from 105 to 21%. In February, the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated the national debt held by the public will grow by a more than $20 trillion over the next decade. The publicly held debt, which reflects the cumulative impact of yearly deficits, would be equal to 118% of U.S. gross domestic product, compared with 98% this year. Biden's budget would reduce the debt, although it would still be high relative to historical levels. Snowpack above 30-year norm, stream and river flows will depend on snowmelt, by Bruce Finley of the Denver Post. Colorado Mountain snowpack measured above normal in early March, a few weeks before the closely watched seasonal peak except in the Arkansas River Basin where lagging snow could lead to low water flows. The snowpack tracked by federal snow surveyors appeared relatively promising with the latest data showing the overall statewide level at 120% of the norm which is based on a 30-year average from 1991 to not 2020. In particular, Watersheds that feed the heavily tapped Colorado River held above average snow according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture Natural Resources Conservation Service snow survey data. We still have a little bit more of winter to go, and then we will have the early spring and early summer precipitation that could still give us a boost. If we do get a good spring, things could get better, snow surveyor supervisor Brian DeMacos said, but things could go the other way, too. Snow on Colorado's mountains typically peaks between March and mid-April and serves as a natural slow-release source of water essential to sustain urban settlement and agriculture in the West. Around April 1st, Colorado front-range cities and food growers on the eastern plains traditionally have calculated whether water supplies through summer will be sufficient for people, crops, and cattle based on mountain snow. Agriculture uses about 85 percent of Colorado's water supply urban water consumption per person has been decreasing, although the state's overall population has been increasing at faster than the national rate. Denver Water Utility officials last week measured water storage in their reservoirs at 82 percent, above average for early March. Utility officials also noted in an agency website posting that soil in the watersheds where Denver draws water isn't as dry as last year, Long-term droughts can leave soil so dry that it quickly absorbs water from melting snow before the water reaches streams and rivers. Climate warming has been shrinking mounted snowpack and reducing runoff into streams. Atmospheric scientists have projected a sharply reduced contribution of melting snow in the Colorado River Basin, a main source for 40 million people and agriculture producers across seven states, including California. Around Colorado, snowpack in the Colorado River Basin measured 118% of the norm, the federal data shows. Southwestern Colorado had the most snow with levels in the combined San Miguel, Dolores, Animas, and San Juan River basins at 138% of normal. The South Platte River watershed, crucial for cities including Denver, and food producers in the most populated parts of northeastern Colorado had 103% of normal snowpack. Along the upper Rio Grande River in southern Colorado, snowpack measured 107% 107 of the norm. The Gunnison River Basin had snow at 136% of the norm, the Yampa and White Rivers, 133%, and the Laramie and North Platte Rivers, 120%. But the Arkansas River Basin snowpack measured 73% of the norm the data show. From waters, from headwaters above Buena Vista and Salida to the southeastern plains out to Kansas, cities, towns, farmers, and ranchers rely on Arkansas River water flows through the summer. Laws to expand access, protect providers are under consideration. Lawmakers say bills build on 2022 law guaranteeing rights by Saja Hindi of the Denver Post. Colorado Democratic lawmakers introduced a package of three bills Thursday that, if passed, would increase and protect access to abortion and gender-affirming care in the state. The proposed laws expand upon lawmakers' passage of a 2022 law codifying the right to abortions at any stage of pregnancy after the U.S. Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision guaranteeing the right to abortions. The bills are starting in the state Senate and they aim to put a stop to disinformation and deceptive practices by crisis pregnancy centers, protect patients and providers who have abortions and gender affirming care from threats from other states and require insurance coverage for reproductive health care as previously reported by the Denver Post. Y'all felt the rage that so many of us experienced in our bodies and in our bones that the Supreme Court of this nation would so wholly undermine our ability to make decisions about our own bodies, Senator Julie Gonzalez, a Denver Democrat and Bill Sponsor, said at a news conference. The court's ruling led lawmakers and advocates to get to work, she said. Cobalt Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, Planned Parenthood, and New Era Colorado worked with lawmakers to craft three bills. Here's what each would do if it became law. Prevent the state from recognizing or engaging in any criminal prosecutions or civil lawsuits for anyone who receives, provides, or assists in abortions and gender-affirming care. It also prevents state employees from participating in any such interstate investigations, limit surprise billing and require coverage for reproductive health care and treatments, including abortion, sterilization, and sexually transmitted infections. Expand access to contraceptives and let patients use Medicaid transportation for abortion services. And it allows any authorized provider to offer HIV medication, not just pharmacies prohibit using deceptive advertising by crisis pregnancy centers, and designate providers offering so-called abortion reversal medication as, quote, unprofessional conduct. Abortion is legal in Colorado, but legality does not equal accessibility, said Representative Elizabeth Epps of Denver and one of the bill sponsors. Our lower-income communities and Coloradans of color face larger barriers and a disproportionate lack of access to protected health care. Epps noted that Colorado is one of few states that offers abortion care in the region, making it among the last line of defense to protect the reproductive rights for residents and those who come to Colorado for these services. In brief, Avalanche conditions are heightened in several mountain areas in Colorado and multiple watches have been posted by the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Very dangerous avalanche conditions are expected to develop by midday Saturday according to the CAIC. Avalanche watches are in effect for the Elk Mountains, Sawatch Range, and the Holy Cross Wilderness, the CAIC said. An avalanche watch this weekend is also in effect for the Park Range to Rabbit Ears Pass, where very dangerous avalanche conditions are expected to develop by midday Saturday and continue through Sunday. The La Garita Mountains and areas surrounding Lake City and Creed are also under an avalanche watch. Avalanches are possible whenever you find snow on a slope steeper than about 30 degrees according to the CAIC. Watch for signs of unstable snow such as recent avalanches, cracking in the snow, and audible collapsing. Avoid traveling on or under similar slopes. There have been seven deaths in Colorado avalanches this season. A former Boulder therapist was arrested after police said he sexually assaulted two juvenile sisters who were clients about 20 years ago. Mark Hochwender, 72, was arrested Wednesday on two counts of sexual assault on a child by a person in a position of trust, pattern of abuse. According to an affidavit, two sisters came forward and told police Hockwender sexually assaulted them while they were children and Hockwender was in his forties. Hawkwender initially was treated the girl's father when he became a sort of family therapist. He then began nude massages, baths, and then sex with the girls that began when they were in middle school or high school. The sisters said they were not aware of the other being abused until they discussed it as adults. The assaults occurred sometime after August 1999 at Hawkwonder's home offices in Boulder and Westminster. A letter was sent to the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies in 2020. According to online records, Hawkwonder retired in 2021 and surrendered his license rather than fight the allegations of romantic relationships with clients. Boulder police said in 2020, the woman also went to police, which sparked a long-term investigation involving multiple families. Study, dry climates aid airborne viruses. CU findings could explain why people are more susceptible in areas with low humidity, by Kiera Demare of the Denver Post, Colorado's dry climate is ideal for airborne viruses to survive, according to a new study published in PNAS Nexus by researchers at the University of Colorado, potentially explaining why people who live in dry climates are more susceptible to such infections. This study, which incorporated a live coronavirus that does not cause COVID-19, showed that airborne viral particles in artificial saliva remain infectious for nearly twice as long in a drier climate than in a humid one. The research was conducted by watching how the virus in artificial saliva reacted to different relative humidity climates. The researchers set the humidity inside a bioaerosol chamber to 60%, 40%, and 25%. At 60 and 40% humidity, the number of virus particles in saliva dropped by half in an hour. At 25%, which is Colorado's average relative humidity, it took two hours for the number of particles to drop by half. This study is very relevant to Colorado because we have such low relative humidity, study co-author Marina Nieto Caballero said. We were honestly not expecting that lower relative humidity would double the infectious potential of the virus. That was something that surprised us. The study also found that at lower relative humidity, saliva has a significant protective effect on airborne murine coronavirus because the saliva formed a gelatinous shield around the particles providing extra protection. Mark Hernandez, the study's senior co-author, operates a lab at CU known for its chamber that aerosolizes bad stuff, such as whooping cough and tuberculosis. Hernandez got the opportunity to do this study in 2020 during the early stages of the pandemic. Philanthropists donated money to Hernandez to study the virus, not to work on developing a vaccine, but to research how the pandemic was spreading. Although Hernandez donated some of the research money to provide Colorado elementary and secondary schools with air purifiers, most of it went to adapting his lab to the new study. Hernandez said the study got two strokes of luck a specialized instrument that is able to catch airborne microbes becoming available just in time for the study, and an Uruguayan virologist getting stuck in Colorado because COVID-19 making him available to join the research. The new instrument improved the quality of the team's research because it better protected the quality of the collected microbes for counting than previously available instruments. That quality helped improve the accuracy of the team's findings on infectious levels. Eddie Fucas Violba, now studying for his Ph.D. in Microbiology at Oregon State University, was the perfect addition to the team, Hernandez said, pointing to his work with viruses during his undergraduate studies in Uruguay and working with earlier coronavirus strains and their effects on chickens. Hernandez's team also included three former CU students who returned to participate in the study, including Nieto Caballero, now a researcher at Colorado State University. To combat virus survival rates in dry climates, such as Colorado's, the study suggests increasing the use of air filters and ventilation in rooms. We need to learn to adapt. And you see it everywhere. Climate change, energy, health, right, Hernandez said. Civilization needs to learn to adapt to these major changes, the pandemic just being one of them. Former Trump lawyer censured for falsehoods about election by Nicholas Riccardi of the AP. Jenna Ellis, a former attorney for Donald Trump's reelection campaign and a prominent conservative media figure, has been censured by Colorado legal officials after admitting she made repeated false statements about the 2020 presidential election. Ellis acknowledged making 10 misrepresentations on television and Twitter during Trump's fight to stay in power after losing the election to President Joe Biden, according to the censure from the Office of Attorney Regulation Council in Colorado, where Ellis is from. The statements include claiming on Janine Perrault's Fox News show on December 5th, 2020, that, quote, we have over... 500,000 votes in Arizona that were cast illegally, and telling the conservative network Newsmax on December 15th that Trump was, quote, the true and proper victor. On November 20, 2020, Ellis appeared on the Newsmax show of former Trump spokesman Sean Spicer and said, with all those states, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia combined, we know that the election was stolen from President Trump and we can prove that. Ellis was one of several prominent conservative voices who in the final weeks of 2020 echoed Trump's lies that the election was stolen from him. Those falsehoods helped fuel the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Respondent, through her conduct, undermined the American public's confidence in the presidential election, violating her duty of candor to the public, wrote Brian M. Large, the disciplinary judge in the case. Ellis becomes the latest pro-Trump attorney penalized for their attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Nine lawyers in Michigan in 2021 were ordered to pay $175,000 in sanctions for a sham lawsuit seeking to overturn the election in that swing state. The District of Columbia's Bar Association Disciplinary Council in December called for the suspension of former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani's Law license for pursuing a baseless lawsuit challenging Biden's win in Pennsylvania. Pandemic hurt Metro Denver economics. Greeley slammed. Two Boulder resilient. Fort Collins and Colorado Springs strengthened by Aldo Svaldi of the Denver Post. Metro Denver had the eighth strongest economy heading into the pandemic, but two years later, its economic ranking slipped to 121st out of 192nd metro areas making it among the most deteriorated economics economies during the pandemic, according to a study from Brookings Metro. The region joined the tested category of top health economic performers from 2011 to 2019, who dropped to the bottom half from 2019 to 2021. About 40% of very large metros, defined as having more than 1 million residents, moved into that tested group, including New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Atlanta, Boston, and San Diego. There are a lot of theories, but not a lot of firm answers as to why. Very large metros had this tremendous run of growth, and they were where economic activity was increasingly concentrated. Denver was a poster child for that inclusive growth, said Joseph Barilla, fellow and director of applied research at Brookings Metro Monitor and a co-author of the study. Brookings looked at three indicators, each in four categories, including typical measures like job growth, GDP growth, wage growth, productivity, and the employment rate. It also had a get category for racial inclusion to measure the gap in employment, earnings, and poverty among various groups. Although very large metros slipped, many nearby large metros defined as those with populations of about 500,001 million rose in the rankings. One explanation is that they may have benefited from lower housing costs, which workers free to go remote found more attractive. Almost mirroring in reverse of Denver's decline, Colorado Springs' ranking went from 119th to 6th, making it among the metros that came out on top economically despite the chaos of COVID-19. One explanation is that El Paso County is more reliant on federal and military spending which were not impacted as severely as areas such as tourism, healthcare, care, and retail trade. Colorado Springs was in the emergent category along with Fort Collins which rose from 126th to 26th in the Brookings economic ranking. Emergent metros are defined as bottom half performers last decade that rose into the top half. Metro Greeley, which encompasses all of Weld County, also was in the tested category, going from 53rd to 190th, near the very bottom. Barilla said many oil and gas hubs found their economies severely tested by depressed oil prices, which caused a reduction in drilling activity. Weld County, once a top performer for job growth and wage gains, also stands out for still not recouping its pandemic job losses. Boulder was in the resilient category, meaning its economy was in the top half before the pandemic and stayed there during the tough years. Boulder's ranking didn't move much, going from 14th to 22nd. It was strong and stayed strong. At the other extreme were stagnant metros, which weren't doing well before the pandemic or during it. Their level of misery tended not to change much. Most stagnant metros are in the Midwest and Northeast and were once dependent on manufacturing. None of the five Colorado metros studied were considered stagnant. Barilla said the concentration of growth in very large metros, especially in the western half of the country, made it hard to supply enough housing to their growing populations. That caused home prices and rents to spike and during the pandemic contributed to population declines, especially in core urban areas like Denver County. There are a lot of fundamentals in Metro Denver that made it a strong economy, and I don't see this derailing what had been a strong economic trajectory, Barilla said. More time is needed to see whether this is just a blip or something more significant. Proposed bill would ban corporal punishment by Jason Gonzalez of Chalkbeat, Colorado. Colorado would ban corporal punishment by schools and daycare centers if a bill proposed by two Democratic legislators becomes law. The state is one of 22 that allows corporal punishment in education. It's not clear how often it's used. The state doesn't collect that data and federal student discipline records show no Colorado cases, but advocates for children with disabilities say they hear from parents who see bruises on their children's arms, legs, and even faces. The bill to ban it has the support of disability and mental health advocacy groups that want the state to send a clear message that it's never okay to hit a child. Most people are surprised we still allow it, said State Senator Rhonda Fields, an Aurora Democrat who is co-sponsoring the bill. It's not the right message we want to send to administrators and schools. The bill is also sponsored by State Representative Regina English, a Colorado Springs Democrat. House Bill 1191 would prohibit an employee or volunteer from using corporal punishment on a child in a public school, a state-licensed child care center, a family child care home, or a specialized group facility. The bill defines corporal punishment as, the willful infliction of or willfully causing the infliction of physical pain on a child. The bill would require school districts and the Department of Early Childhood to prohibit the practice. Colorado doesn't collect data on corporal punishment according to the Colorado Department of Education. The Federal Office for Civil Rights didn't record any complaints from Colorado about corporal punishment of students in 2017-18, to the most recent data available. Nationwide, the Office for Civil Rights reports boys are about four times as likely as girls are to be punished with corporal punishment. Black students also receive corporal punishment at twice the rate of their peers. The majority of corporal punishment reports come from Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Texas, according to the federal office. Emily Harvey, Disability Law Center attorney team leader, said students with disabilities are also at high risk. Her office regularly gets calls from parents about physical pain inflicted on their child, she said. Those incidents often aren't investigated, she said. The bill makes a statement that physically hurting children, especially students with disabilities in Colorado, is unacceptable, she said. The bill is just one extremely small step toward creating more inclusive and welcoming, and therefore safer schools in Colorado, Harvey said. This is at least the second effort by Colorado lawmakers to ban corporal punishment. In 2017, a bill cleared the House, but stalled in a Republican-controlled Senate. Republicans didn't explain their vote. At the time, sponsors and advocates could point to a single complaint about corporal punishment used in Colorado schools, a sticking point for some Senate Republicans. Advocates say this year's bill is backed up by a body of research that physical discipline leads to a greater risk of health risks, such as depression, antisocial behavior, and suicide. School corporal punishment also may cause more aggressive behavior or low self-esteem in students. To address behavior, Colorado schools should strengthen their support for students, said Vincent Atchity, Executive Director of the advocacy group Mental Health Colorado. As a good example, he pointed to the I Matter program, which can provide a student's six free virtual counseling sessions. He is pushing for the state to provide mental health assessments and referrals for students in 6th through 12th grades. Allowing school staffers to hit students' fields, said... Is not appropriate when we have a nation and a state that's dealing with an increase of violence and crime and where kids don't feel safe in schools. Thank you for joining us for the Denver Post. My name is Dee Heislip. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.